This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We need to eat. We need to work. We demand the right to know. We demand freedom. Those are some voices of citizens of China's great metropolis, Shanghai, breaking COVID lockdown rules and gathering in the street to protest. Shanghai's population of 25 million has been ordered to stay at home since the government imposed the lockdown at the end of March. Some 46 cities across China are under full or partial lockdown, affecting the lives of more than 343 million people. That's about exactly the same size as the United States. It's all part of China's COVID zero policy. As infections keep popping up, the government keeps clamping down. Now, other countries have tried COVID zero programs, New Zealand, Taiwan, Vietnam, others, but all of them have pulled back from the goal of total COVID eradication. Only China is holding fast. So today, we're going to ask why and how the COVID zero strategy is having an impact on China and the massive and massively powerful nation being what it is, how that is having an impact on the rest of the world. So let's begin in Shanghai. Don Wineland is there. He's China business and finance editor for The Economist. And uh, he was first on obligatory quarantine. And then the lockdown began at the end of March in Shanghai. So he and his wife have been mostly confined to their hotel for 61 days. Don, welcome to On Point. Hello. So first of all, tell me, sort of what are the conditions um, that right, right now uh, of your uh, particular lockdown? The conditions right now um, have actually become more strict just over the past 24 hours. Um, We were allowed a little bit of time out over the weekend, um, but there's been a um, a, a shift in policy and um, things have tightened up and we are back inside. We can't order um, delivery food anymore, which is, um, you know, that makes things a lot more difficult. Um, So, yeah, things just recently have, have become a uh, more difficult for us. Okay, I said you were confined to your hotel, but should I be more specific? Is it your hotel room that you and your wife have been confined to? We're in something that's a little bit better than a than your average hotel room. So we're in a service department. Um, it has two rooms, uh, a small kitchen. So yeah, it's it's. A, a bit better than than an average hotel room. Okay. Now, beforehand, um, in previous interviews that you've done, you were able to leave what what once a day in order to actually go get um, PCR tested. Is that is that still going on, or are you, are you literally in your hotel room or your suite twenty four seven? So for the past two days, we've actually been asked to do the um, rapid at home antigen tests in our room. So we haven't gone downstairs for the PCR tests. Um, Prior to that, we we had been going down nearly every day uh, to a place just next door to do the uh, the PCR test. So we we're, we were able to step outside at least once a day. Yeah. Honestly, Don, how's your mental health right now? Um, you know, uh, I would say week two, week three, it became a it, 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 that that was probably the most difficult period of time. Um, Honestly speaking, I mean, I, I feel like I've gotten used to it and I've gotten past some of those, you know, uh, 
feelings of anxiety. Um, my wife uh, is doing very well as well. You know, she has good days. She has bad days. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this point, 61 days in, this is kind of the new reality for us. Okay. So about food, though, um, if you can't get food deliveries, uh, how are you and other people in Shanghai? What's the situation now for, for the basic needs of, of life? Um, in the earliest days, it was very difficult to get food, and then it got much better because um, we could start delivering off of food apps um, and uh, food services. Um, we have enough to get by for the next few days if they keep this very strict uh, lockdown in place. Um, but the government says that they will deliver food, and we received a package of, of uh, food today um, from the government. Um, I actually haven't looked inside. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not too hopeful. Uh, you know, if the government does have to continue providing food, I'm not uh, terribly hopeful that they can provide the best stuff. Okay, so, but so then to the larger point of the other, you know, um, sticking with Shanghai for a moment, the other, you know, 25 million uh, plus people in the city ha- has that been the situation that uh, food, when needed, has been provided by uh, the Chinese government? Um. In some places, yes. In many places, no. So you, you were playing some clips of, of people protesting um, earlier on. And, you know, I, th- I think there's lots of people in this city that have not had adequate access to food. I don't think my situation here is representative of how things work across the city. This is a huge city. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty of people that have that have struggled to get food for sure. OK, so, you know, I know it's a little odd to ask you about what's happening in the rest of Shanghai, given that you haven't been able to leave your hotel uh, or uh, hotel room for more than 60 days here. But as you know, I mean, there have been a lot of uh, waves on social media, um, reports of uh, in- increasing um, anxiety and frustration. I mean, how would you describe um, what the what the tenor um, or tension in the in the city is right now after um, a long, prolonged, and very severe lockdown? Yeah, it's an interesting question for somebody who is spending most of their time inside. Um, I was allowed outside um, on the weekend, so things opened up on on Saturday, and I was allowed to walk outside. My wife and I had a two and a half hour walk, um, so I, I did get a good look at what was going on. Um, I, I, I've lived in, in Shanghai in the past. Um, and I mean, this city is basically unrecognizable. It's, you know, the, the streets are completely dead. Um, there's almost nobody outside. There are very few cars. The people that you do see are the, you know, the, the um, medical workers in their white hazmat suits. Um, I mean, it's very, very bizarre. Um, yeah, so it, it's certainly not its usual self. Okay. I mean, it's actually almost impossible to imagine a city like Shanghai being so um, empty and still and quiet. It's it's eerie. But, I mean, just last week, President Xi reiterated this iron-fisted commitment to COVID zero, right? He, he urged... Um, COVID enforcers essentially in places like Shanghai and the other cities that are under this extreme lockdown to, quote, unswervingly adhere to the general policy of dynamic COVID zero. So, I mean, tell us more, Don, about what you can um, what you can gather about 
um, about the response to that, why this is happening, you know, again, leaning on what you've been experiencing now and your um, experience overall as a, a business and finance editor in China for The Economist. Yeah. So um, the, the specific comments from the uh, the standing committee of the of the Politburo that were released last week, I think um, we are now experiencing that in Shanghai right now. So the the increased restrictions, um, the the stopping of, of food delivery is basically a response from what we can tell to that that message. Um, so yes, uh, they they are um, really putting a stop to any kind of free movement in order to try to lower cases. And what one interesting thing from that message from the government was that, so in the past, they had talked about balancing the COVID response with economic growth. They didn't really have a lot of that language this time. So that means that, you know, they're willing to sacrifice more and more uh, uh, economic growth to control COVID. Okay. So let's talk about that, Don. I mean, given again, that you are the business, China business and finance editor uh, for the, the economist, what impact is this having, first of all, on China? Um, yeah, so this is the you know the, the business and finance hub of the country. It's one of the biggest cities in the world. It's one of the biggest manufacturing areas in the world. So naturally, when you lock it down, it has a huge impact. Um, if we're just thinking about, say, industry in China, you know, there are lots of factories uh, you know within the, the city of, of Shanghai. You know, there's a Tesla factory that um, Reuters reported that they were um, slowing down their operations yet again. So there's lots of industrial activity that is that is suffering greatly right now. Um, there is another side to, the, to this as well, which is you know small businesses. And you know walking outside, the few times that I've had the opportunity to to do that, you can see that there are there nothing is open, no shops are open. Uh, it's completely silent. So you can only imagine the type of impact that has on you know small business owners and just you know average mom and pop type stores. Hmm. Okay. And so then inevitably, given, as I said earlier, China being what it is, um, how do you anticipate that's going to have a ripple effect outside of China? So in terms of the direct business impact, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, auto parts and cars that are made in the, in this city and in other parts of China that have been impacted by by COVID recently. Um, you know, it takes a long time to build these things and ship the, ship them to the U.S. Um, I think in places like the U.S., people that have ordered specific models of cars um, that are produced in these areas, you know, they might not get them on time. They might be delayed uh, significantly. Um, so that's kind of how, you know, that's just one example of, um, you know, the, the the impact of this kind of rippling around the globe. Another side to this is that a lot of companies will probably uh, expedite their plans to diversify their supply chains. That means opening up a factory in Vietnam or, you know, elsewhere in Asia. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, Don, we've got about 30 seconds left here. Um you know, I mean, obviously, you and um, other uh, uh, and the, and the many hundreds of millions of Chinese who are under this prolonged lockdown now don't really have a choice. But how long do you think you can keep tolerating it? It's a really good question. Um, I something that I talk about uh, almost every day with my wife. Um, we we have not set a. a, a departure date. So, you know, hopefully we, we make it through. Mm. And by the way, are you vaccinated? 
I'm de- I'm definitely vaccinated with the, not the Chinese vaccine Pfizer. with Pfizer. Okay, Pfizer and boosted. Yeah. And and nevertheless, being in China right now, you have to stay confined to that hotel room. Well, Don Weinland, yes. China business and finance editor for the Economist, with us from Shanghai. Thank you so much for joining us, Don. Thanks very much. Good luck. Okay, so folks, by the way, if you're listening and you have friends or family members in China, in any one of these dozens of cities, uh, including Shanghai, that's still under this COVID zero lockdown that's happening there. What are they telling you? Hop on Facebook or Twitter. We're at On Point Radio and let us know. We'll have a lot more about why China's adhering to COVID zero when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we are talking about why, we're trying to understand why China continues to uh, refuse to relent from its COVID zero strategy, the latest chapter of which is the lockdown in dozens of Chinese cities, including Shanghai, more than 340 million people across China under a severe lockdown um, for the, over the course of several months. I'm joined today now by Yang Zhang Huang, Senior Fellow for, for Global Health at the Council on Foreign Relations, also Director of Global Health Studies at Seton Hall University School of Diplomacy and International Relations, and author of Toxic Politics, China's Environmental Health Crisis and Its Challenge to the Chinese State. Yang Zhang, welcome to On Point. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Yang Yang Chong, fellow and research scholar at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center, frequent columnist on Chinese politics and U.S.-China relations. Yang Yang, welcome back to On Point. Thanks so much. By the way, Yang Yang, every time we have you on, we get um, flooded with emails about how uh, brilliant you are. So we're happy to have you back. So first of all, can you tell us um, what you're hearing from, from people that you know, um, social media that you've been monitoring about the, the tenor of um, or the willingness right now in China to for people to continue on with these lockdowns. Mm, this is such a great question, and, and I think it really, really differs. Um, depends on one's own proximity to the worst consequences of the COVID policies or the pandemic itself. And I'll give you one example. Um, a few weeks ago, I got this uh, message from my mother who is saying that on how she and her friends are watching the situation in Shanghai and commenting about it. And my hometown, I grew up in the medium-sized city in central eastern China. And and she was saying that they are saying how Shanghai being the richest city in China is having such a horrible situation and why it is seemingly unique in terms of how difficult the situation is. And my mom was saying that, oh, it's because Shanghai is too capitalist, it's too westernized, it's too individualistic. And that's why they didn't handle the uh, lockdown policies well. And initially, when I heard this, I was rather upset. It's like, oh, this is a rather uncharitable thing to say about the city and its people who have been suffering so much. But then I also realized that um, on one hand, there may be like valid reasons in terms of urban planning, in terms of the distribution of resources that are related with how 
how Shanghai is faring. On the other hand, like China is also a city with uh, extreme geographical disparities, and for people coming from the provinces who've also felt a sense of inferiority and geographical discrimination compared with city、uh, people coming from the first tier cities, and so now it seems like the tables are turned, and there are very human、uh, reactions. However, I think most importantly, when my mother made these comments, it was when there was a cluster of cases that were discovered、uh, in my hometown, and so the city was preparing partial lockdowns and other forms of restrictions. So it was really a self, like a psychological self-defense mechanism that my mother was deploying, trying to rationalize the situation, trying to find some kind of reason that creates a form of distance between her own situation and the worst situations, the plight that she's been seeing coming out of Shanghai and some of the other cities. And so it was really、um, a way to reclaim power when oneself feels so powerless, both in times of the virus and in times of state policies. Oh, okay, fascinating. Now. You know, again, out outside of China, the in a sense, sometimes the best that we can do to ha- understand、um, what is going on in the places where the lockdown is is happening is through you know some of the the social media before it gets taken down, I should say,、um, uh, that people are putting up. There's there's one、um, recent viral video、uh, that shows this hazmat suited COVID enforcement officer essentially.、Um, Ordering residents to be quarantined after a neighbor tests positive, and and in this video,、um, the the officer says it's not that you can do whatever you want unless you're in America. This is China. Stop asking me why. There is no why. We have to adhere to national guidelines. So Yan Zhang, let me ask you, how, when we say COVID zero as a policy in China, what exactly does that mean? What is President Xi's goal right now. Well, that zero COVID policy itself has evolved. Right in the beginning, they want to basically secure the achievements by, made、uh, during the、uh, Wuhan outbreak. You know, to maintain extremely low level of infection, and in the meantime, to buy you know time you know for mass vaccination. You know, but of course now、right, it has changed to the so-called dynamic zero、mm-hmm. COVID. You know, basically they just want to nip the crisis in the bud. You know, so uh, to uh, you know, reset the cases to zero in the shortest time. You know, so once you find just one or two cases, you know, immediately trigger those zero COVID measures, including mass PCR testing. Quarantine, you know, mass, you know,、uh, disinfection, and even sealing of the neighborhoods in order to reset the cases to zero. That's now what they mean by zero COVID. Okay, so reset the cases to zero in that locality. That's right. Actually, by zero COVID means that the、uh, zero cases are found in uh, uh, unquarantined、um, areas only. Okay. Now I will say. That it wasn't that long ago,、um, where you know, 2020, 2021, in the many, many conversations that we had with public health experts here in the United States, they were saying, in fact, what you're describing,、uh, describing Yanjong, is the kind of、uh, pandemic control measure they would have liked to see in the United States. So not necessarily a blanket shutdown across the whole country, but these more targeted efforts wherever there are outbreaks. I mean, so so it's not in in that sense. Is what's happening in China not entirely as draconian as maybe the media is making it sound? 
Well, it is true. I, uh, I, you know, I wish the United States, by the beginning stage of the outbreak, you know, t- took uh, undertaking uh, took some of the measures China has undertaken uh, after Wuhan or during the Wuhan. You know, but now I think situation has changed. Right, the, the we have the vaccines available. You know. A majority of the population has been vaccinated, and the virus is becoming uh, less virulent, right? The uh, so you know that makes it less justifiable to pursue this draconian zero COVID strategy. In fact, if you um, use the uh, case fatality rate you know, recorded in Shanghai, that is zero point zero six percent, right? Even you assume right that the thirty percent of the population. In China, infected, you know, by Omicron with Omicron, you have eighty-four thousand deaths, right, in total in the country. So that is, uh, uh, you know, not what the country, the 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 uh, the people, uh, the policymakers have argued. You know that if you open up, we're going to see more than one million people die. Okay, but but so just so I'm clear, you're saying that in across all of China, there's been eighty-four thousand deaths out of one point three billion people, roughly. Oh, I'm talking about, yeah, was the, I'm sorry. I assume the 10% infection rate in the entire country, unfettered spread of the virus. That is, even though you don't do anything, right, uh, there will be 84,000 deaths. Of course, if you assume a 30% infection rate, uh, the death toll increased to 20, um, 250,000. Mm. But still, that's far short of you know what the government has predicted. You know, if the China significantly relaxes its policy. Okay, understood. Yang Ying, I'm going to come back to you in just a moment. But, but uh, Yan Zhang, if I may ask, then is what you're saying that you you do not feel that um, even this dynamic COVID zero policy uh, adhered to by President Xi is necessary in China anymore? Well, that's the the, the, the the dilemma you know Chinese leaders are facing, right? If you don't have many severe cases, if you don't have many deaths, right, then you cannot justify that zero COVID is necessary. Because people then will ask, if well, this is not so virulent, then why bother, right? All this draconian, heavy-handed measures. But uh, you know, mass die of a spike of cases, if it does happen, right, it can prove right, that the China's pandemic response is wrong, right? Uh, so I think that you know, that's the issue. Right? If, uh, ultimately, it's a political uh, uh, issue, right? That uh, uh, there's a political logic behind uh, China's zero COVID strategy. Okay. So the possibility of perhaps being proven wrong. That sounds like the political version of the sunk cost fallacy, uh, Yang Yang. I mean, is that what's What's going on here? How would you examine sort of um, the the political cost benefit analysis that President Xi might might be doing here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as Professor Huang said, this um, this COVID-19 policy in China is no longer just a public health measure. It is a political mission. Of course, there are valid concerns with regards to the relatively low elderly vaccination rate, the relatively low um, efficiency of the Chinese uh, domestic vaccines, as well as the shortage and extreme geographical disparities in terms of the public health resource distributions in China. So these are all valid concerns. However, right now, because zero COVID 
coming from the central government is so tied with the legitimacy and superiority of the Chinese political system and is directly coming from the top leadership. So it is very, very difficult for any local officials or municipalities to deviate from that mission. For someone in China to die of COVID-19 is a political mistake, while for someone to die of another reason would just be an individual tragedy. For any local officials in the bureaucracy, adherence to the zero COVID policy uh, is a a measure of not just personal uh, technological competence, it's a measure of political loyalty. And very, very importantly, over the past two years, the Chinese government at every level of the bureaucracy has built up this massive infrastructure with human power and with institutional and also infrastructure, uh, like actual physical infrastructure to carry out the massive testings and quarantines and lockdowns. And that just by bureaucratic inertia alone is very, very difficult to reverse course. You know, I have to say that a politician's fear of being proven wrong is not unique to China, right? I mean, in a sense, that very same human tendency is one of the things uh, that... that you know caused the catastrophic response initially to COVID here in the United States. We too had politicians who did not want to be proved wrong, but they just kept claiming the opposite, right? Donald President Donald Trump kept claiming we were going to be you know around the corner to beating COVID any second now <laughs> during all of 2020, which just was not true. And we have one million you know dead Americans to prove that. So Yang Yang, though, let me let me ask you in the Chinese context though. How powerful is um, is this drive to stay with what has, and I'm going to put this in quotes, worked in China to control, to try to control outbreaks um, as they continue on, especially given that, you know, I'm sure the Chinese people remain um, aware and sensitive to the fact that um, COVID first emerged in China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think um, how powerful, <laughs> um, well, on different levels, on, on, on a state level, it remains a very pol- powerful policy because it is tied with the top leadership and tied with regime legitimacy and security. On the bureaucratic execution level, I think this is also something that is important. If we look at the so-called Dabai, the big whites, the ones in hazmat suits that are carrying out the individual testings and lockdowns, including breaking into individual private residences and taking people into centralized quarantine or disinfecting the homes. These people, some of them are medical professionals, some are police officers, but many are migrant workers who have lost their other forms of regular employment because of their manufacturing, construction, or service industries were shut down because of the COVID policies. And so they take on this kind of really uh, rather physically grueling and highly stigmatized work. And these are people who are usually at very low runs of the Chinese society. And and, and now they are being given this form of power tied with the state policy. And this, of course, doesn't apply to every individual, but many are just by a, on a human level would also try abuse their powers as a way to feel a sense of control, a sense of superiority over others who are relatively powerless. Mm-hmm. And on the public, in, uh, on the individual level, who are at the receiving end of these policies, I think this kind of sentiment is also uh, fragmented. On one hand, there is the virus. On the other hand, as Professor Huang also mentioned, that when the virality of the virus has, has shown to degrees and that there are other policies in other parts of the world, there are 
also kinds of concerns. However, as I mentioned earlier, because the Chinese state has built up such a public surveillance and security infrastructure tied with the zero COVID policy, and that is very powerful and may remain in place well after this pandemic phase of this uh, um, of this public health crisis has passed, and that is very powerful as well. I see. So, so Yan Zhang Huang. Are there other vested interests as well, uh, you know, beyond uh, President Xi and and the decision making at the t- the highest levels of Chinese government? Um, are there other vested interests um, in in maintaining a COVID zero strategy in China? Oh, absolutely, right. This vested interest, I think, in part to blame for the sustaining of that zero COVID strategy, right? That is, are some. Uh, um, uh, independent Chinese scholars have pointed out that over the past two years, China has seen the formation of a powerful interest group, you know, this coalition right, consisting of the government agencies, you know, that uh, interested in um, pursuing this Orwellian you know, surveillance state, even you know, as Yang Yang has pointed out, even after the end of the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, business entities, including vaccine makers, you know, PCR testing companies, you know, that uh, making, you know, fat profits, you know, uh, from um, uh, the uh, uh, implementing by right, the zero COVID strategy, you know, then the, the public health experts, you know, those politically ambitious ones, you know, they care about their own personal career, you know, they're resistant to any significant policy relaxation and of course right the, the routinization you know and institutionalization of that strategy you know only right further solidify you know, that alliance fascinating okay so in that case then though uh yan Zhang, what um with the with the combination of the veteran of the vested interests and um sort of the the political cost again for uh, the fear of being proven wrong i mean does that how how sustainable is it for this even this dynamic covid um zero policy to continue I- in china it sounds like it could continue for quite some time well the common sense is that the weighing why right, the cost of implementing that strategy exceeded right the benefits right uh, it's time for China to abandon that approach, as Sun Guang, you know, a, a top government health advisor, indicated the last summer. You know, but again, you know, now there's the political logic there, right? The, you know that uh, uh, the, the political stakes so high, right? That yeah. uh, uh, you know makes those cost issue essentially secondary. So, you know, that uh, means right, that we are going to see the continuation of that strategy uh, before right, the 20th Party Congress, mm. because, you know, when that, the, you know, the leadership transition, right, is you know, going to happen, right? right uh, Yan Zhang, that, hang on for just a second. I for, forgive me for interrupting you. It's just that we have to take that, this quick break. So Yan Zhang Huang and Yang Yang Chong, stand by. We'll be right back. Right back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. 
I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, On Point listeners. I'm poet and author Shin Yi Pai. As you celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I invite you to listen to the 10,000 Things podcast from KUOW and the NPR Network. 10,000 Things is a podcast about modern artifacts of Asian American life, ordinary objects that tell extraordinary stories and reveal something profound about the experience of being Asian in America. Find 10,000 Things from KUOW and the NPR Network wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Uh, a little later this week, we're going to be talking about children and mental health because, of course, there's uh, an increasing mountain of evidence that young people in this country are undergoing, in a sense, a mental health crisis. We're going to focus in particular, though, on children of color who have seen an even greater increase in um, mental health uh, needs and a diminishment of their mental health over the past couple of years. So so families of color, parents, caregivers, um, what's it been like for your kids? Have you seen um, a, a more darker or decrease in, in your children's mental health, uh, whether it be mild or severe? Have you been able to get the help that you and your child need. We want to hear the stories from families of color. Call us at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. That's for a show we're working on later this week. Today, we are talking about China and its continuation of now calling it a dynamic COVID zero strategy. Why? What benefit it might be bringing China? What's the cost? And also, again, China being what it is, how it's reverberating around the world. There's a lot of comments coming in here from from some listeners here. Robert Bradley says the transmissibility of Omicron is too high and the Chinese vaccine is too weak. Lockdown will not work this time. Ray Russell says the vaccines don't work plus or their vaccines, I should say, don't work. Plus, you can't control human nature. You have to let the virus run its course. We made a big mistake locking down along with strangling the economy. We are paying for it now. Uh, Caught talking about the U.S. situation. Uh, On the flip side, Anna Christina says, They, being China, uh, are taking the long-term consequences of infection seriously. They think long-term, while the bumbling idiots in the West only care about the now. Uh, We can debate that out a little bit later. But Yan Zhong Huang, let me just quickly ask you about um, the comments here about the Chinese vaccines not working. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, we say the Chinese vaccines are not working. Basically, uh, we mean like that the Chinese inactivated vaccines, which are the most widely used in the country, are not effective in preventing infections, especially against the highly transmissible Omicron variant. But according to studies from Hong Kong, three doses of the Chinese inactivated vaccines actually 
are effective in significantly reducing the risk of severe cases and death. Ah, okay. So then, I'll let me ask you both. But Yang Yang Chong, let me turn to you here, because I think a little earlier um, you both talked about how. Uh, there are relatively lower rates of vaccination, especially amongst more vulnerable populations in China. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's true that, um, for example, my mother and my grandmother are not vaccinated yet, and it's a point of extreme worry and frustration for me as well. Um, but I think this is really a, a situation that needs to be looked at. Um, it's multifaceted. Um, first of all, of course, the Chinese government had embarked on uh, and amplified um, disinformation that discredited the Western vaccines as a way to prove its own superiority and as a way to um, for to advance its geo political purposes. However, for the domestic vaccines, as Professor Huang mentioned, of, though its uh, efficacy is limited, it does have efficacy in terms of preventing severe, uh, severe illness. However, the vaccination rate, especially among the elderly, is uh, very low. Like I think the, the official figure from mid-March from the Chinese government is like 40% of people who are eight, um, age 80 or over are still unvaccinated, and only about half have received two doses of the domestic vaccine vaccine. And I think there are, of course, uh, individual sentiments because of the uh, skepticism with regards to this uh, new uh, new product, especially when there is already a long-standing public skepticism with regards to this rapid industrialization and that's oh. effect on the environment and public health. And also there have been scandals with regards to Chinese vaccines and food safety and drug safety in general. So there is a public sentiment there and that contributes to vaccine hesitancy. There are also concerns about side effects, etc. But I think uh, it is very, very important here that we do not only blame individuals, however, look at the systemic issues that that contributes to this relatively low vaccination rate in the elderly population in China. Now, the Chinese government embarked on a different strategy compared with what was here, that here in the U.S., for example, like the elderly, the people with pre-existing conditions are prioritized in terms of receiving the vaccine. However, in China, the, the, the priority, first of all, was given to people who like work at airports, in customs, transportation workers, where people travel a lot for business. The people who are considered more likely to transmit the virus mm. and the vaccination uh, the vaccination is prioritized to people who are like a younger or middle aged and and of course there is also this underlying sentiment that the vaccine may not necessarily be so uh, so crucial since there is uh, is effectively zero domestic cases up until quite recently and also uh, there is also uh, there is also the reason of resource access. Now, for a lot of elderly people who may not be so uh, adept at digital technologies, who may lack access to transportation and, and other forms of resources, and who may just not know how or where to get these kinds of vaccines. And that is a problem we don't just see in China, but around the world sure. as well, that the most marginalized are most impacted. Yeah, no, point well taken. But, oh. You just said so many interesting things, Yang Yang. I'm not even sure where to, how to follow up. But 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 Yan Zhong, let me turn to you because I, I hear everything that Yang Yang Chong just described. Um, and at the same time, in China, we see a nation that essentially built hospitals overnight, 
right? When, um, you know, when uh, early on in the pandemic that mobilized, as you've both talked about, this deep structure uh, for pandemic control and surveillance that has that is capable of um, a, uh, of enforcing a lockdown of to this day of 340 million people. So what is the reason for the prolonged lower vaccination rate, surprisingly lower vaccination rate um, from from the uh, amongst the, the elderly and most vulnerable? I heard what Yang Yang Chong said about um, individual skepticism and the reasons for that. But if you're the Chinese government and you really want to to achieve COVID elimination, wouldn't you want to get um, a vaccine program as far and widespread across the country as possible? Well, absolutely. Well, here actually this it reveals this tensions between zero COVID strategy, right, and a strategy that prioritized at-risk population, uh, including uh, the elderly. Right. The uh, um, the biggest problem is that zero COVID cannot tolerate any infections. But we know even the best vaccines right, Correct. cannot do that. That's right. right? Yeah, that's right. And secondly, right, zero COVID, as Yang Yang just indicated, right, shields a population right, uh, from the virus. You know, that created a false sense of security among the population. Right? So if we are feeling safe, why bother to get vaccinated? Right? And then third problem also has something to do with the implementation of the zero COVID is that when, like in Shanghai, you mobilize most of the health professionals to enforce the quarantines, to provide PCR testings, right? Basically, you don't have much, uh, much manpower right, left to administer the vaccines. In fact, the beginning of March, uh, mid-March, Shanghai closed you know, many uh, vaccination sites. Oh, okay. So interesting. Now, if if you both allow, uh, for a moment, I just want to um, sort of take a, um, a a little tangential look at another country that also initially embraced a very very rigorous COVID zero strategy. Um, you know, no one's quite like China, but it's I I think it's instructive to look at other nations that wanted to achieve elimination, and so New Zealand being one of them. Uh, they had those very strict lockdowns early on um, in the pandemic. And in fact, for many, many months, the rest of the world looked at New Zealand as a paragon of COVID control because they were highly, highly successful. But in October of 2021, seven weeks into an outbreak of the Delta variant, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced the end of Auckland's COVID zero strategy. But as you can see, with this outbreak and with Delta, the return to zero is incredibly difficult. And our restrictions alone are not enough to achieve it quickly. In fact, for this outbreak, it's clear that long periods of heavy restrictions has not got us to zero cases. Again, that was October of 2021. So more than six months have passed since then. And that's why we contacted Judith McCool, who heads the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Auckland. New Zealand's experiment with the zero COVID policy was a process of trial and error, really, and also a bit of watch and learn, see what was happening in other countries. Now, early on in the pandemic, as I mentioned, what New Zealand saw around the rest of the world was chaos. So they opted for an almost total shutdown. We did the hard mahi, as we call it in New Zealand. We'd impose 
reasonably severe mobility restrictions, border lockdowns, social isolation, etc. Really early on, no one leaves the home unless they're an essential worker. We really didn't know enough, um, but we certainly knew that our health systems just weren't going to cope with what was appearing to unfold in other countries. But then came the Delta variant, which could not be fully controlled in New Zealand. And as mentioned before, October 2021, New Zealand ended its COVID zero strategy. We were becoming increasingly aware of the loss of appetite. We just didn't have the guts to go through another severe lockdown experience. For New Zealand, it wasn't so much just just ripping off the Band-Aid and just letting it run rampant. Importantly, I think one difference that we had in New Zealand was because we had a really high vaccination rate in our most vulnerable populations. So we had an over 95% vaccination rate in our oldest age group. We were slower off the mark um, with our other vulnerable populations, so our Pacifica, our Maori population. So this was not an equitable strategy for these populations. But overall, we were able to go, Okay, we do not need to do severe restriction and lockdown. Now, as of March of 2022, New Zealand's death toll stood at just 68. But the highly transmissible Omicron variant has pushed that number up by more than a factor of 10. Now, more than 800 New Zealanders have died, but it's still one of the lowest per capita COVID death rates in the world. So Judith McCool says life is more or less back to normal. We still have masks wearing in retail stores. We can come into our workplaces now. We can move about relatively freely. We can go to large gatherings. I mean, I attended the graduation for Auckland University yesterday, and it was, you know, a large number of students. The staff were masked on the graduation stage. Students were a mixture and family as well. So, so that is permissible. People make, are making their own decisions about what's right for them. So in New Zealand, people making their own decisions, as Judith McCool just said, about what's right for them. That's working for them now, not a COVID zero strategy. So we asked, what does McCool make of China and its continued choice to stick with an elimination strategy? My advice for China, if I was to be audacious enough to to offer it, would be to listen to your populations. Um, really, really carefully. Communication is so incredibly important. People in New Zealand were willing to really, you know, knuckle down and shut their doors and not see family, not bid farewell to loved ones as they before they died because they believed it was for the good of the whole. So I would say to China, um, not coming down heavy on top, but coming up from and saying in working with those communities, invest in that communication. So that's Judith McCool, head of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of Auckland. Now, Yang Yang Chong, uh, you know, I understand that it might seem a little foolish to ask someone in Auckland to comment on uh, decision making in Beijing. But I wonder what you make of that. I mean, she's coming at this from a public health perspective about listening to the mood and the willingness um, of people in in lockdown in China and and having advising the government to communicate better with them. 
Yeah, um, and um, I, well, I, I myself agree with um, with the comments. However, I think also as we've discussed in earlier in this conversation, um, the, the Chinese government's COVID policy is really not just about public health, and it has a lot of uh, exterior con uh, concerns with regards to le regime legitimacy and security, with regards to other forms of political political control, uh, as Professor Huang mentioned, all these types of um, additional interests that are now connected with the COVID-19 policy. One thing I should also mention, right, in terms of the mobility of people, both on the border control, both not letting people come in and also not letting people go out. And this kind of atomized grid-like surveillance network that really would last beyond this crisis phase of the pandemic. And these are the things that the state had invested in. So this is not just about what is most effective for a, a, a COVID-19 um, response, but this is really about how the Chinese state calculates its many conflicting interests and try to make a, a judgment in terms of what is the best for its political control in the immediate term. Oh, fascinating. You know, and I understand that, I mean, Yan Zhang Huang, there is something of a I don't know how we characterize the what debate what debate looks like in China, but there have been reports that, for example, uh, Professor Tong Jiwei uh, at Shanghai's East China University of Political Science has written a letter that the the lockdowns form a kind of legal disaster, and that the Chinese government needs to be needs to uh, balance people's rights and freedoms, uh, and local governments in China need to do so. Too. What do you make of that? Is there, a, you know, a sort of a legal pushback even from within China? Well, well, we have to uh, remember that uh, there's all these dissenting voices, you know, mostly from Shanghai. <laughs> they mm. represent uh, the loudest, most articulate voices, you know, from China. And so, uh, you know, was, uh, when we talk about listening to the mood of the population, I, have, I still think a majority of the population continue to support zero COVID with limited access to alternative information. So I think it's more important to educate the public about true risk posed by the virus. You know, that, that we cannot expect China to uh, come out of the world without uh, uh, the rise of the cases as, you know, the deputy director of China, former deputy director of China CDC has yes, said. Yes, yes. Well, Yan Zhang Huang, uh, Senior Fellow for Global Health at the Council on Foreign Relations, thank you so very much. And Yang Yang Chong, Fellow and Research Scholar at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center, thank you as well. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>